0: Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview Lauren Chapel. Uh, Lauren is a native Texan uh, currently studying aquatic biology at Texas State University. Um, Lauren is a very passionate uh, aquatic biologist and a conservationist. And it was really great to talk to her. I've been keeping up with her for a little while now on Instagram, and uh, she's done some really cool work with native fish, and she cares a lot about getting involved in different um, conservation uh, projects and and just uh, really leading a life of uh, making the world a better place. And uh, so it was really great to talk to her, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So now I bring you Lauren Chapel.
1: I am Lauren Chapel. I attend Texas State University currently in San Marcos. I yep. am a master's student in Dr. Tim Bonner's lab, uh, working on aquatic biology research and originally from San Antonio.
0: Very good. Uh, and you said like a small town outside of San Antonio?
1: No, unfortunately, directly in the city.
0: <laughs> oh, you're from the city itself. Okay. I yeah. you said you went earlier. Um, cool that san antonio is a great town you know it's um everybody goes there for the river walk and the cool history stuff yeah, yeah. A
1: aquatic uh, biologist i just love the san antonio river and all of those uh sucker mouth catfish and tilapia and all the you know animals. the fact that it's all wastewater treated water hey further down though san antonio river authority has done a really
2: beautiful job yeah. with some restoration work but actually um, the river walk itself.
0: I've worked with Sarah a little bit Um, at my last job. They're doing a ton of stream restoration. And we had several um, employees in San Antonio that work with, uh, we call them Sarah, San Antonio River Authority. Um, And I got to do some field work out there. And actually in the San Antonio River, we had some field work. That river is kind of (laughs) nasty. I will admit on the south end
1: up top it's it's still got its problems like in the in the middle of downtown but uh lower down yeah san antonio river authority has done a really beautiful job with the restoration and i'm originally from the south side of san antonio so i grew up going to some of those parks um and they definitely were rough and so now seeing how beautiful they are and seeing you know the the community down there benefit from having such nice parks uh has been really wonderful to see
0: yeah, and they're they're only getting nicer. The the a lot of those projects are underway right now. Um, last year, when I was working for the consulting firm I was at, we were out there doing um, like delineations and taking inventory on some of the parks, and a lot of them were really overtaken by uh, invasive plants, like privet, glossy privet was everywhere, and various other species. And the the streams were like really downcut and not functional streams at all. So like over the next five years, a lot of those parks that have uh, streams that are part of that San Antonio watershed will be restored, which is great.
1: Um, there's, there's a lot of really awesome nonprofits and like volunteer organizations that do really neat things. I I volunteered with a group called River Aid San Antonio, uh, RASA, and they were out near like San Pedro Creek a bunch picking up litter, and they've just they have the most amazing pull with the city of San Antonio and community members and getting out basically almost every weekend to clean up litter. So, you know, you've got the ecological restoration as well as people going out and picking up a lot of litter. It's, it's been really wonderful to see. The city has definitely benefited from it for sure.
0: Super cool. Um, When did you, when did you find your interest in aquatic ecosystems and wildlife in general?
1: Um, I love this question because this is probably the coolest thing about me is that uh, in second grade, there was a field trip down to the IMAX center in San Antonio. Um, That was for the GT kids only, which I was not a part of that club, but uh, my best friend's mom was the manager of the IMAX and she gave my mom three tickets for me, my brother and my mom. And she said, you know if you guys can get out of school that day, which you know, second grade, I'm like, absolutely, let's leave school for the day. Yeah. And I had no idea who this person was that I was going to listen to, but I spent a couple hours sitting in front of Jane Goodall. And
0: oh my god, what I the- <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting? So,
1: no, I know it's it was quite amazing and. Um, just completely captivated by her. I've, I've always loved being outside. Unfortunately, in you know the heart of San Antonio, there's not much outside to enjoy. Um, I do, I, f- I found the pockets my whole life. I was able to get outside as much as I could, but uh, you know, at the time my, my place to go outside was I had this really cool cedar tree that I would climb up and sit up and talk and read. And so to see this woman who made a whole career of being outside, I was like, that's what I want to do. Now, I did not know what exactly I wanted to do, but I walked out of, uh, walked (laughs) out of that experience. And I think we bought a couple books, um, and I just was captivated and enamored with everything that she was saying. And she's so soft-spoken and just such an intelligent woman. Um, but we were leaving and this is the second coolest part of the story is that we went to uh, leave the parking garage and we were going to pay our parking ticket and I look over in the car next to me and it's her. Oh my god! <laughs> she was sitting right next to me. So, but yeah, after second grade, I was just dead set. And then a couple of years after that, um, one of my teachers, she had an assignment where you had to pick some animal in Texas to do a project on and you know, I think everyone went for the obvious, uh, like white-tailed deer, largemouth bass. And I was like, I want the ocelot, you know? So I did a whole project. I think it was like fourth grade on ocelots in Texas and down in Laguna Madre and how like the, one of the biggest threats is uh, habitat loss and them being hit by cars. And, you know, I just, I stuck with it. And In high school, I had a really amazing environmental science teacher, uh, Mrs. Mayer, if you're listening, (laughs) but she was great. And, uh, you know, I just I was very lucky to have those experiences at a young age, even being from the city of San Antonio. I think that a lot of people who I'm around in my program grew up somewhat in rural areas or had more access to public lands than what I did. So being able to have those experiences at a young age definitely are what pushed me into this career. But um, honestly, I I came to Texas State undergraduate. I was here 2012 to 2017. I took a victory lap. But uh, I came in as a wildlife biology major, because that's what I knew was out there. I guess I didn't, I didn't really realize that there was an aquatic biology world. And I came in as about 90% of the undergraduates here do saying I want to work with big cats. Right. Um, and through my time, I, I definitely struggled with my uh, my intro courses that like
2: <laughs>
1: medieval British literature class, really, <laughs> that was a tough one. Uh, but once I got to my major courses, I was just fawning over everything that I got to do. But Zoology was taught by Dr. Bonner, the man that I work for today. Um, And he asked one day, you know, I've I've got a a field trip that I need extra hands for. Uh, One of his PhD students had some dissertation work up on the Red River. And I jumped at the chance and it shot me over from wildlife biology, wanting to work with big cats to small fish, which I feel like is a total 180. That is. Uh, And (laughs) I just... Yeah, I just i i stuck with it, and I have enjoyed every moment of my career path since then. I have been very very lucky with the technician jobs that I've been able to take, the places I've been able to see. Um, it just, I sometimes I just sit sit at my house like in morning in the morning time, like having my coffee, and I just think like how lucky am I to have you know lived near the smoky mountains and been able to snorkel these montane streams and see such rare fish out in North Carolina and then be in the depths of the Grand Canyon for nine days working. And now I get to come back to the place where I got my start and work for Dr. Bonner again. And it's just, you know,
0: very, very lucky. We gotta we gotta explore some of those adventures at some point in this podcast. Um what drew you to fish and aquatic ecosystems? Was it the field work being out in the water and like just the places or is it the fish themselves or fish aren't very charismatic generally speaking
1: um first off rude but uh i think they're <laughs> I very fish. charismatic <laughs> i
0: love fish uh and you don't have to sell me on fish but like big cats are charismatic you know
1: cats are very charismatic <laughs> traditionally charismatic traditionally. but i think that uh you know fish are also very charismatic and I, i will say and maybe we can go into more detail on this if either of us remember but um, there's been a really wonderful, somewhat awakening, I guess, of like the general public to our freshwater ecosystems with the large influx of people moving to the area and people being very worried yeah. about uh, our water resources. And it's, yeah. it's and kind of the Edwards, plateau,
0: people- the Edwards plateau in particular, right. And the Edwards aquifer mm-hmm. you're talking about. Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: And it's, it's pushed people to be more interested in what lives in their rivers. And mm-hmm. I I do I do a little bit of outreach work uh, when I have the free time and I have been able to talk to so many people um, who are just interested in what's going on in the rivers. And they leave, you know, with 10 different Google tabs open on their phone of all the different fish that I mentioned. And so there's, people are definitely garnering interest and some are just absolutely stunning. Um, But yeah, so my, my interest to revert back to that, but uh, my interest in the field, sure it came from field work that that first experience was actually horrific uh i had the worst time up on the river uh it was it was rough so i mean i grew up like when we would go camping my family we'd go you know south texas and we'd go to like guadalupe river state park in june or frio in june So I actually embarrassingly had no idea that North Texas got cold. I thought all of Texas was hot and you know, my, my camping gear was a cheap Walmart sleeping bag because you don't need anything really fancy for hot weather camping. Uh, You don't sleep in it anyways. You sleep on top of it. So I had this horrible Walmart sleeping bag. I wore my warmest clothes that I had were Adidas track pants and a freaking windbreaker. And we got out of the truck around like Abilene, I think, to get gas. And it was like 30 degrees outside. And I said, How come none of you told me? Like none of you wanted to tell me that Texas got cold because now I am very unprepared. And it was not the best. Uh, luckily, I was not the one in charge of packing for that trip because it was my first trip out. But uh, Truly somehow right. you
0: had waiters at least, right?
1: Well, well no. oh, oh. somehow for six of us there were only three pairs of waders oh, no. so
0: that's no good the... I don't need cold and water
1: <laughs> no and I mean it is pretty shallow water but those prairie streams are definitely susceptible to any kind of fluctuation in temperature so yeah. they were very very cold and I mean luckily the three people the my professor and then the two graduate students kind of you know suffered for the three undergraduates we were allowed to wear the waders but yeah, I looked over at guy who it was his dissertation research and he was in chacos and swim trunks standing in like a foot of the red river just i mean it i think we woke up that morning to like 15 degrees it was it was rough but no i mean the the field work was fun that first trip but what really got me was the following monday whenever we got back i went back up to dr bonner and i said hey that was that was rough we also our truck broke down in abilene and we were stuck in a uh, pool hall for six hours while we waited for somebody to drive up from San Marcos and rescue us. So it was kind of, it was kind of a wreck of a weekend, but you know, I I went up to him and I said, Hey, that was neat, cool experience. But I also, you know, I want to cut into these fish. We were doing life history work of a few different fish up there. And so we had to do dissections and I said, I want to get in on that. And between the field work and all the adventures and misadventures, but then the lab work as well. And just being able to be a part of that research and answering unknown questions or unanswered questions was really what, what stuck with me. I think that, uh, you know, there's, there are so many things that have been overstudied and I think that, you know, the ocelot was like a great animal to get me interested in this field, but I think pretty much everything you need to know about an ocelot is out there. And when For it sure comes is. to okay. fish. communities.
0: Oh, there's so animals. many unknowns with Texas yeah,
1: spec- alone. Yeah. Specifically non game fish. We uh, just-
0: studied, I was thinking of game fish.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, Guadalupe bass. We know a lot of what we need to know. Largemouth bass, same thing, but you know, I've got an undergraduate who works for me right now. Great gal. She's working on life history of the Harlequin darter, which is just a beautiful fish out in your neck of the woods. Actually.
0: Um, I know about it because of your story posts on Instagram. Okay. And, so, you know, like I don't, I guess, you know, you can't talk about specifics with various research, but the, the habitat where y'all are finding those from what I could tell is really shocking to me. It looks like very yeah. absurd habitat.
1: Yeah. So it's in, it's in, uh, some canal systems, which, yeah, you know, I'm
0: familiar with that canal system. I grew up running around in that same canal system and just not biodiverse. Like darter habitat at all.
1: Incredibly biodiverse. I mean, there are places that you can go creeks that are in the middle of the city that you wouldn't expect anything to be living in. And, and you find some insane fish. I just saw the other day, I don't remember whose Instagram it was, but some guy was like at a motel six in Ohio or somewhere. And he like went behind his motel and took a seine back there with him and he caught like five different species of non game fish. And it's like, that was behind a motel six. Hey. So no, I mean, you can, you can find stuff basically everywhere. And that's what interested me was like, you know, there is just so much that is still unknown and water is such a um, hot topic right now, politically. And, you know, just, in, in general, like it seems like water is constantly coming up recreationally too. And yep. so, I mean, the idea of being able to be around a body of water for the rest of my life and answer so many questions and, you know, maybe help put the public at ease with some things or, you know, answer questions that have been around for decades that just nobody has wanted to get into because they know how much work it is. That's something that's just really, that's what took me mainly in this
2: field.
0: I remember um, at one point you were trying to get a hold of a, a private landowner in West Texas and because you think there might be some um, undescribed fish up there, maybe like near the Davis mountains in that general area in the trans Pecos region. That, that was you, right? No,
1: That might've been my coworker.
0: Oh, really? I've almost specifically remember you posting about it, but
1: what was, um, I mean, I know like I've, I've chatted with, uh, some private landowners out in the area and I've, I've gotten us access to some really insane places, but. Um, it was like a whole history-
0: mountain range owned by this one guy.
1: That oh, wouldn't then- let
0: any researchers go out there or something.
1: So that's, uh, that's not so much. I wasn't like reaching out to him, but no. I was just on one because yeah, it's like this, um, this tobacco tycoon who you know bought up a bunch of land out in west texas and so the state of texas has such little public land and this guy bought up just an insane amount of land out there i think it was like seven or nine ranches all combined
0: like a whole mountain
1: (laughs) yeah yeah different portions of this mountain range and uh water out there too and it's like you know nobody even knows what exists out there because he's never ever opened it up for researchers to come out and I think at one point uh, he owned another piece of land on the other side of Big Bend. It was either him or somebody else. And like the state of Texas was going to buy it and turn it into a wildlife management area, which would have been just insane, but yeah, it'll benefit. The guy wanted it
0: will benefit everybody.
1: Yeah. The guy <laughs> wanted so much money that it was unattainable for yeah. the state. So, yeah, but they, yeah, no, that, that was, yep. That, that was me. I yeah, was on yeah, I thought
0: so. And the only reason I bring it up is because you're like, you were talking about, I, I could just see the passion. I could hear the passion in your voice about, like, what could be up in those mountains and those, those wetland features that might exist there? Like, you know, possibly some fish species we know nothing about. And I think the same way, you know, like, I love exploring and, like, exploring the unknowns. It does suck that, um, you know, pr- like, conservation in Texas is so heavily reliant on private landowner support. Um, and when people don't, collaborate when landowners don't collaborate really sucks
1: well and i would say for the most part landowners are, are pretty open to it yeah um i've come across a handful who are very closed off and it's because they had something really gnarly happen like right. just one person with a bad attitude ruined it you know or there's there's a story of um, a plot of land out in west texas that's like just mystical magical everybody knows about it and some some researcher was out there like he used to the landowner used to open up his property and some researcher was out there and he said like oh man this would make a great state park and then that was it you know no more access to the property and it's if you do get access to private property it is all you know respect to them and what they're allowing you to do. And, you know, you go over with them, like, if I find something on your property, this is the process that I have to go through. And I haven't reached that point yet. I've been able to, you know, see my advisors and my bosses, managers talk to landowners about it. And so I know the right way to go about it, but I haven't, you know, released a report from private property or anything, but, you know, they say like, if we find something, this is the process that we have to go through before right. we publish it. I want to make sure that the maps that I draw up are okay with you. Um, it's very much like, yes, ma'am, no, sir, type of yep. you know respect for them allowing you onto their property. I mean, one of my first experiences working with a private landowner was this really wonderful man and his wife um, had a ranch that had a, I think it was like Sunrise view of the Davis Mountains and a sunset view property of the Guadalupe Mountains. Oh, wow. And it just was, yeah, I mean, living lavishly, obviously, but we went out there and they were just so sweet. And they brought us into their house and they had like a small time dairy operation. And the wife had just made a fresh rum cake and she had fresh milk for us. And I was like, man, all private properties, I wish were, you know, owned by people like this. Like, this is just such a wonderful experience. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's all about respect. And, you know, you can have your desires, your wishes when you go onto somebody's private property, but if they aren't comfortable with something, it's all all according to what they want done and don't want done. So
0: who knows what it's like to own a bunch of land? Like you might, I know I would probably be extremely picky about what went on if I owned a uh, 200 acres of wildlife habitat. I'd be picky about certain sort of things. Obviously, I would be very supportive of any academic efforts out there, but um, I, I can imagine it it being a pretty like stressful thing being a private landowner when people are out on your land.
1: I do think that's a privilege of being in academia. Is that um, a lot of people are very much uh, supporters of students and education and learning um, versus, you know, I've, I've heard stories of people working for state departments or the feds who, you know, it, it's not even an option to ask private property owners if they can get onto their land to do research. Um, but when it comes to academia, most people are just so nice. Um, right. Plus it really helps to work for a, very texan advisor from parker county who always wears his stetson and has you know a bottom lip full of copenhagen so every time we get to somebody's private property he puts it on thick and they're like you know at the end hey tim it's so nice to meet you y'all are welcome anytime it is so nice to work for someone who's got really good charisma like that
0: yeah you got to be able to talk to these people and get on you know get on their level yeah, yeah. It um it is um yeah private land is always a difficult thing like some people are really scared of especially federal agencies like the u.s fish and wildlife service because they're scared of the endangered species act and it's really unfortunate because i feel like a lot of landowners would love to support conservation but they're scared you know that their their operation might get might get um altered by like the discovery of an endangered species. I don't know. It's it's a very complicated issue all around. So yeah, you discovered your passion for aquatic biology and you did some pretty cool tech jobs along the way. Now you're doing a master's degree.
1: Correct. Yeah. Um, master's back with Dr. Bonner at Texas state.
0: And, and what exactly are you studying for your master's?
1: So, official title at the moment is um hydrogeological effects on water permanency acting as a structuring mechanism of fish communities in a semi-arid region of texas okay now as to kind of go into more broader detail um i my thesis basin is out on the nueces river looking at i know just stunning (laughs) area the
0: best river i know i know the Devils in and the not, New sir yeah.
1: and, and I'm restricted to uh, the Edwards Plateau region. So not like the Corpus Christi, <laughs> not the Nueces Delta, but like okay. the beautiful... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Portions. The, 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 the good stuff, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but yeah, so looking at how um, there, there's a lot of differences between the Nueces, Frio and Savannah rivers. So those are all within the upper Nueces River Basin. So looking at water permanency between those three rivers, comparing across the three, and then uh, comparing from north to south on these rivers as well. So when you're high up on the Nueces, Rio, and Sabinal, that's where you get a lot of your spring influence. That's your Cretaceous geology, Cretaceous yep. age, the Edwards Plateau.
2: Yep.
1: <clears throat> and that's where the Edwards aquifer is contributing to uh, stream flow. So you've got, you know, a lot of spring associated spring, spring fish, basically. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so there's the noasis round nose minnow um, in the frio. You've got your headwater catfish um, Mexican tetra, which are not native to all of texas but they are native to that area
2: okay. um
1: yeah. and then you have your green throat darter which is a native spring associated fish and uh um plateau shiner you plateau
0: plateau saved sh- so, yourself
1: <laughs> obvious name okay
0: so, tell me Reverse. this uh, not to derail you here uh does oh, this derail. river have uh, species that are unique and aren't found in the other three
1: Um, so kind of like the headwater catfish has been reported in the new and I believe in the Sabinol as well, but, um, it's been hybridized a lot with channel catfish. So like in the Frio, they're still reported, but there's a question genetically of if it is, if the reports are still. 100% Um, 100% pure headwater catfish, or if they are hybrids, which there has been a lot of genetics work done um, with some geneticists from TPWD that show okay. that pretty much all of the catfish, the headwater catfish found now, are hybrids. Okay. Um, but, you know, we were talking about private property. Well, there's a question of like, you know, some of these private properties that are a little bit higher up on the Frio that have somewhat of isolated spring systems that haven't been sampled in a long time. Like, you know, is there the potential of being a pure headwater catfish up there? Yeah. Um, and then on the Sabino river, um, the Nuasis round nose minnow has been found out there historically. Okay. Um, but it's been very long since it's been reported high up in the Sabino. Gotcha. Um, but it's still found in the Nueces in Frio, but ironically, actually, a genetic publication was released in 2012 or 13 that um, split that fish in many, many different ways across the state of Texas. Because oh, there's, wow. there's a few
2: different species in
1: Texas, um, and it split a bunch of those species into more, um, and they split the Nueces in Frio round nose minnows into the new aces still the Nuasis Round Nose Minnow, but its scientific name changed. And oh. then
2: the Frio version is now the
0: Frio Round Nose Minnow. Gotcha. And that's
1: the original scientific name. But um you know those those populations are pretty well isolated from each other just based off of how those rivers connect to one another and how far down they connect to one another. But um but yeah so basically my thesis is just looking at how These fish communities change as um, the rivers move southward, southeastward. So around um, the Balcones fault zone is where you get your recharge zone of the Edwards Aquifer, where your streams are sinking into the Edwards Aquifer. And many, many numbers are out there in different publications about just how much water the Nueces River contributes to the Edwards Aquifer, but it is... Pretty well agreed upon that the Nueces River is like one of the main contributors to the Edwards Aquifer um, of any river yeah. that contributes to it. So it's a very important river and it loses its surface flow um, under normal conditions around the Balcones fault zone
2: because it's hitting all
1: of these cracks and crevices and either sinking directly into the aquifer or it's just going a little bit below the surface in alluvium fill. So like a lot of cobblestone and stuff exists yeah. up there. And so it's still, you know, above the limestone, but it's just below this alluvial fill. Well, there's always so much worry every time that the river starts to lose flow in that area. And in severe drought years, um, there's especially a big sense of worry. Like pretty much the Frio River is the first one to be like in the news saying, oh, the Frio River is losing flow. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no water where there usually is around CONCAN. Can't, fl- um, but that's, can't
0: float if it's low. <laughs>
1: yeah, can't float if it's low. And that's like the B, B River to float yeah. in Texas. But yeah. so, you know, we're kind of looking at like, well, Not so much what the normal conditions are because that you need a lot more data and a lot more like processing and past data, which I don't I don't necessarily have a bunch of past data to look at. But I'm very lucky that um, a past student went out for his dissertation work and he collected in three years that one was after a major flood. Um, major flow pulse had moved through. Okay, yeah. Two were during like sustained wet periods, and then I came back in during a drought period. So I got one sample in 2021, and then another one uh, in this past summer in August when it was uh, some of the lowest levels recorded in quite a long time. And able to go out and sample these fish communities, and we're piecing together some questions that we have and that other people may have had of. You know what happens to these spring fish whenever the water starts drying up so it's been wonderful looking into all of this i've learned so much about texas geology that i did not think i would get to learn with an aquatic biology masters Um, but it's been amazing and i got to take a really awesome uh hydrology class this past semester where i got to learn even more about it so it's been really wonderful
0: or to paint the picture for people that don't know about Texas geology at all the Edwards plateau is this unique region we call it the hill country right and it's all the limestone was it's all cretaceous in age and it was basically the bottom of uh, an ancient ocean right
1: yeah so um it's like a huge portion of central texas and the western region is still pretty flat um, the hill country region is more so the eastern portion Out of remains. the Edwards Plateau that's uh, been eroded over time. And so that's what gives it its characteristically beautiful hills.
2: Yeah.
0: Like around Austin, it's very, very like there's all the little uh, slot canyons and stuff. And between uh, like Vanderpool and Lakey. Yeah. Uh, it's
1: a really Popular motorcycle route and just a beautiful area to drive. Um, the hills out there are just some of the most beautiful hills that I've seen. And not a lot of people know about it out there. Not a lot of people drive those roads, except for people on motorcycles because they know they Mm -hmm. get how beautiful it is, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's stunning out in that portion of the hill country.
0: Yeah. And it's rich with biogeographic novelties, like species found nowhere else out there, fish and some cool plants and different, different, it's such a unique place, the Hill Country and the Edwards Plateau. Love it out there. So yeah, your work is in a, you know, can't complain about your, your field sites, right?
1: No. And I mean, I was also lucky because in 2016, uh, I actually got to go out and sample with that past PhD student and see these systems during sustained wet years and, and right. know the difference between then and now. So, you know, I got to go out there and sample then. And when I came back, there were still some questions that my advisor had about that area. And we planned a field trip for his ichthyology class to go out there thinking that I was going to do something with that data. And it was such a uh, just beautiful moment. We're driving around uh, the headwaters of the Nueces River And, you know, we're bouncing ideas off of each other and the windows are down and we're, you know, the sun setting and it's just such a beautiful moment. We're like, what about this? And what about that? As you know, we're driving alongside of this fork of the Nueces river, that's just crystal clear, beautiful. And it winds back and forth under the road. And, you know, it was a really great moment of like, this is mine now, like this is my data set. And I get to tweak it and work with it and analyze it in all different kinds of facets. And to have the connection of not only, you know, do I get to analyze this data, but I got to help collect it, not just in my time researching this, but also when I was an undergraduate and seeing it in those different conditions.
0: Right. H- have you ever floated the, for you?
1: I have when I was a little kid. Um, in fact, I went to, uh, the HEB camp, um, Quite a few times, I, I grew up in a Catholic church that took advantage of, um, you know, their programs out there that you can do church camps. And so, right. many, many times, I got to go out to the HEB camp and be near the headwaters of the Frio, which is a beautiful, beautiful area.
0: Yeah, so you have like a nostalgic connection to some of these places. Yeah, that's super cool. I floated the Frio. One time and I was completely blown away by that experience. It was, I did not know I was floating around at that time. I didn't know I was floating around with like incredible fish diversity, like with fish found nowhere else, but, um, just the karst habitats and the clear water. And it, it's so cold year round. It's, it's just so clean and pristine and it's much better than the Komau. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, Hey, all river systems in Texas are beautiful. They are. But,
0: the Comal is the what hinders that experience is the quantity of people.
1: <laughs> well, then come check it out in the wintertime. Cause there's not nearly as many people. I mean, obviously because you know, it's cold out, but because it is a spring system, the, the water itself stays at a relatively constant temperature. Same with the San Marcos. So if you come out on a cold day, like I, I swim the San Marcos in the mornings and just like, yeah. Well, I live just steps away. And so I get out there winter, for in
0: the winter time.
1: Yeah, I get it. And I mean, I haven't done this like long-term it's been like the past, like five or six weeks that I've All been right. doing it, but I mean, I, I used to do it too in undergrad, but, uh, the past few weeks I've been getting out there, even on the days that it's 30 degrees in the morning and you just get in for about five minutes and I swim for just five to 10 minutes and that's it. And luckily I live so close that my fingers don't start going numb until I'm unlocking my front door because it's not the water. That's cold. It's getting out. That's getting out. Yeah. So by the time that I get out and I'm at my house is when I start to get cold. So it works out.
0: That is so cool that, you know, when I was, um, thinking about what college to go to Texas state was so attractive because the river's there. Like I knew I would have fun if I went there, but (laughs) the reason I didn't go there is because their wildlife program required O- Ochem one and two, and I think physics one and two as well. Whereas A M's program did not require any such classes. I had to take physics one, but not physics two, and I only had to take one Ochem class.
1: Which is crazy because if you asked me how many times I used Ochem in my career, I would say mm, not very many. Okay. So, you know, for wildlife biology students to take that those classes specifically was a little intense. But the program has changed quite a bit. So, okay. if you're listening to this, you want to come to. Now you get to take a, I want to say it's like physics for wildlife sciences class oh, instead of. Very good. Like that. Um, I do think that you still have to take uh, OCHEM 1 and 2 and CHEM 1 and 2 and all of that, but yeah, the classes are changing a little bit. So yeah. it's, it's I, a really great program.
0: Though. There's, there's different, like um, you're talking about like academics and jobs and stuff. Um, like they're, they're, the people that are going to pursue academia, like perhaps it's good to take all the hard sciences but like people that want to get right into management or like consulting, like you don't really need to know about these things. Like,
1: well, I oh, would, yeah. I would venture to say you should know a little bit about physics. If you're going to be working a job or you have to back up a boat and trailer. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know? so it's, there's, there's yeah. some necessity to it, that's yeah. for sure. but, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, honestly, like, some of these classes may not be a necessity necessarily, but you do get to meet a lot of people and learn a lot while you're in these classes. And although, trust me, I struggled with Kim too. (laughs) Uh, I struggled twice with Kim too, Uh but (laughs) Ada, I got to meet some really neat people. And the second time I took it, the professor that I had was really wonderful. And I actually retained the information that time. Um, Maybe not to this day, but at the time I retained it, but yeah. I mean, classes are classes, unfortunately, yeah. in college, those beginning classes that you have to take. But Perfect. once you're in the thick of it with the wildlife program here, it's just, you can't beat it. The right. The classes you get to take are absolutely amazing. Um, the professors that we have are just f- phenomenal, phenomenal people. And, you know, they really care about their students too. So it's, yeah. it's a wonderful place to be.
0: It seems like... Uh- everybody that I, I know that went there for wildlife or aquatic biology has had a very good experience and it was a much more personal experience and it was, is a fairly big school. Even their wildlife department is fairly big and it took me a lot of time to be able to like get involved with research and, and become friends with uh, grad students that would let me come help. Whereas at Texas state, I feel like there was much more access to getting good undergrad experience. Yeah. I
1: mean, I, I, I am lucky enough that I get to um, TA for zoology in the okay. spring. Um, so one of the first questions that I ask my students, because it's, it's for wildlife and aquatic biology, it's their first class in the major. Um, so I start off by asking them, you know, the simple, what's your name and uh, um, what's your favorite animal or whatever. But then I ask, you know, what is your desired taxa that you want to work with? And most of them say, oh, I don't know. Um, But some of them say, you know, I had one guy in my spring class, he said, I really want to get a PhD in my research, like jellyfish. And I was like, whoa, you just entered into your first class in your major. Like, you know, you still got two years left in this, like think about a PhD after the fact, but you know, it is, it's cool to get students who have such an eagerness about one specific taxa, but I also think it's really cool to get those students who just don't know, or they say, you right. know, well, I came here because I thought that big cats were cool. Yeah. Um, or you know, a lot of them have volunteered at a big cat rescue or a wildlife rehab place.
0: Or sea turtles or dolphins. A lot of people for yeah, the marine stuff. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And so it's those students who it's like, you know, hey, spend this semester dissecting all of these animals and learning, but also go talk to specific professors. So right. if I had a student come in. know i'm interested in bats i would say go talk to sarah fritz she is so cool so knowledgeable like i i look up to dr sarah fritz in many ways and i have nothing to do with that um so you know it's i try to get them involved with a certain professor or certain graduate students like some students um i had one who said you know i really want to be a biology teacher and I sent him my coworker's information and I said, go talk to her because that's what she wants to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so being able to connect these students directly with someone is something that I think is very important because I was lucky enough to somehow come across the opportunity to go out with Dr. Bonner and forge relationships with two PhD students and one master student in my undergrad. And that is the main reason why I'm here today, right. you know, so I I love the idea of being able to forge those relationships. And yeah, these professors really care. And a lot of the graduate students think it's really amazing to be that mentor that they had in undergrad. Right. So, you know, seeing these relationships form, I mean, I've got such a great undergrad that is working with me that she was my zoology student in the spring. And she said, you know, my mom was actually an aquatic biology major here back in the day. And I was a nursing major when I first got here, but now I want to do aquatic bio. I don't really know what that means, and I said, "Okay, you're mine now. I'm taking you, and you are under my wing." And now she works in our lab. She's the one doing the Harlequin daughter life history work, and she loves it. You know, so it's it's really amazing to get to be a part of like fostering these relationships and helping students figure out, um, you know, what professors to go and talk to or graduate students and. I'm a huge proponent of students getting technician jobs too in the summer. And so I love I run our aquatic biology Instagram, and I love posting about jobs Mid- that yep, I see
0: Minnows University.
1: Yeah, that's Minnow University. that's us.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I love- uh, yeah, I, I love posting job opportunities that yeah. I see. and I get, you know, some undergrads message me. I just had one the other day who was like, you know, I really want to get involved, but I'm only a sophomore. I feel like professors won't want me. And I said, no, that is the perfect time to get involved because they have time to train you and mold you. And then they've got two years left with you. So yeah, get out and start asking. Um, but yeah, that's my whole tangent on getting involved.
0: (laughs) I had been working in the wildlife field for a little bit before and like during college, but as far as getting involved with, um, research when i was at AM. it didn't come until like my last semester so it was like it was great that i got into something but i wish i would have done that the whole time because i felt like i would have been much more motivated to pursue what? grad school and pursue research
1: that's what i hear like yeah. i i was up in north carolina uh like living at this really neat mountain home and the guy who I lived with played banjo. And I'm like, sit on, yeah. sitting outside on the porch, like listening to him play banjo. And I had a friend call me. and It was the end of the spring semester. She was still a student here about to graduate. And she was freaking out because she realized that she had no experience. Yeah. And so, you know, here I am. And I'm just like, I get to sit at this beautiful place and get to do research in such a stunning con- portion of the country. And
0: this was a tech you know, or, or what? Or yeah, what?
1: this was a tech job for the state of North Carolina, okay, out of yeah. their Wildlife Resource Commission. Okay. okay.
0: This was during yeah. like a summer like between undergrad. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah, it was my first tech job out of undergrad. And okay. you know, I'm I'm like, man, I am so lucky that I had a professor that just asked, "Hey, I need hands." And I jumped at that opportunity. And I got 2 years with him in that lab. And here this poor girl is calling me freaking out as I'm sitting on my porch, listening to my roommate play banjo, you know, (laughs) and I get to go to work in the morning and go snorkel for spot fin chubs. And, you know, my poor friend is freaking out. And it's like, that is part of part of why I am such a proponent of getting involved and trying to make those connections for people. Because like you just said, you know, you're lucky enough that you did get a semester. Some people don't get any. Um, but having that long term relationship with someone is just so worth it.
0: Mentorship is so important. It's one thing I found. I've found, and I've had great mentors outside of college, and those mentors are so valuable to me. They still help me, like even when I decided to leave my last job to go work at a duck call company, I called all my wildlife mentors and to, like vented to them about the opportunities I've been presented with, and they're they've they've just helped me throughout my whole career in general, you know, not just with specifically with wildlife stuff, but mentorship. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. And being able to mentor young people is a huge honor as well. And I'm always looking for opportunities to do that as you are.
1: Yeah. I mean, I even like, I find myself as a graduate student looking at some other graduate students and I'm just in awe. Uh, one, she just got her master's degree in December and she is one of the most amazing photographers. that She just took up as a hobby. Uh, if you want to follow her Instagram, it's Maggie Stoneham, S T O N E H A M. She's amazing, and she did a job up in Denali for the National Park Service doing like backcountry biology research. Wow! And uh, so that was her tech job between undergrad and grad school. And you know she's she's a couple years younger than me, but I actually look up to her. And how knowledgeable she is. And she also lives in the sickest house. She's renting this really cool place down in the bottom of the devil's backbone. Sits on That's 15 cool. acres. She just is outside all the time taking photos. And it's, you know, she is somebody who I look up to. And even though she thinks I mentor her, she actually mentors me a lot too. So
0: yeah. And I had it like mentors don't have to be people that are older than you. I have mentors that are like my age or younger, you know, you're like, yeah. Which for some people that's hard because like you have this people have like this ego about age, yeah. Um, and I think it's human nature, but like when I when I meet somebody um, that is clearly more experienced, I don't. It doesn't matter who, who, like age, any of these things are like superficial features about the person. I'm interested in learning from them and establishing them as a mentor. You know, I think that's really Absolutely. important. Um, by the way, how, how old are you?
2: oh 28
1: 28. so very young I know like I don't know I know that's such a like faux pas like people get so freaked out about how old they are going I know
0: age is such a yeah I I don't really care how I'm 26 and I feel like I'm 18 still so (laughs)
1: one of my best friends told me she got pregnant or she like just had a baby. And I was like, wait, we're not old enough to do that yet. So so. no, I mean, you're, you're as old as you feel, but no, I know that, uh, you know, there's so many like non-traditional students and, um, people who come back to get a degree later on in life. And I mean, I was so wary about going back to grad school. I started when I was 27 and, um, I just, I was like, man, like, that's just too old. I can't believe I waited this long. And then my, my cat's a veterinarian. Actually, I was at an appointment with him and he, he knew what I did. And so, you know, we we're chatting about it a little bit. And I said that, and he was like, well, I didn't go to vet school until I was 30. And
2: yeah. he
1: said, I felt the exact same way that you did. And then I think it was his grandma. He said that uh, he was telling her that one day, you know, well, I really want to be a vet, but I don't want to start vet school at 30. And she said, well, you're going to be 31 day anyways. Why not be 30 and be working towards your future, you know, right. working towards what you want. And that has resonated with me of like, you know, cause I, I toss around the idea of going to get a PhD often. I am incredibly passionate about this field and about research mm. and disseminating information to the public. And I think that getting a PhD, whether I stay in academia or I, you know, go work for us fish and wildlife. Being able to have that under my belt and broaden my knowledge even more and deepen deepen yeah. my knowledge on these subjects is just you know it's it's a goal of mine and so that I,
0: you see yourself doing a PhD for sure.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, currently yeah. maybe maybe not tomorrow at you know seven a.m. I might change my <laughs> mind again, but no, for the most part, I'm I'm very set on going to get, get a PhD. I I would love to work for a few years and gain more experience and you know, have the opportunity to get into writing reports and permits and, right. um, you know, being a part of the actual work field for a while. But I, I'd, the idea of getting a PhD, especially the people I know who have a PhD are some of the people I look up to the most. Um, but, you know, for a while, I thought like, if I go get one, I got to go right after I finish my master's because if I don't, You'll, I'm going to be old.
2: You get rusty. And
1: yeah. Yeah, now I'm like, I, Mm-hmm. You know, I can wait a couple years and then go get it. Like, there's time is time is nothing, you know. So,
0: as long as you're like really enjoying yourself and you know, like pursuing your dreams, I don't people get so caught up on age, it's really ridiculous. And I mean, I, some of the people I work with are like,
1: you know, they're a little bit older and even more spry than I am. And we've got one professor here who, uh great professor and he taught ornithology for a while. I don't know if he still is, but I remember I went out with him once in undergrad and he had a uh like a three-wheeled walker and I looked down for like five seconds and that man was like a hundred yards ahead of the rest of us, you know, and we're all in our early twenties, walking out to this pond that he birds at, and he's just so far ahead of us, you know, and it's like these these people who are in this field, like so many people are so passionate, and some of them waited years and years to go get their bachelor's or their master's or PhD. Right. And it doesn't matter because we all ended up here for a reason. Right. So may as well take whatever time you need to get to
0: that point. But yeah,
1: you know age is nothing truly.
0: So y- your your passion is is science and conservation. Do you do any stuff on the hobby side? As far as like hunting, uh, birding, like wildlife stuff in general?
2: So
1: mostly non consumptive, yeah. but um, so I really enjoy like rewilding. I know that's kind of a new word and like it's not a new concept, but it's a new yeah. word that's been applied to it. So um, Native American Seed Company out of Junction, Texas is a wonderful company. Oh, yeah. Um, I know it. Yeah. I think everyone does. Yep. Uh, Their seed production is just insane, and I have been lucky enough to uh, I I volunteer on the San Marcos Greenbelt Alliance outreach committee, and through that I have met a lot of people who have connections to so and so whoever, and they just have packets and packets and packets of wildflower seeds. So that's one thing that I've been really into is they call them seed bombs, and it's basically just like you know you take a little ball of dirt, get some water on it, make a little mud ball and stick seeds in it. And then you can just like toss them all around or put them under a little bit of soil. So, and all of a sudden you've got wildflowers. So yeah. I started doing that in my backyard and you know, it's, it's mid January and I've already got wildflowers starting to sprout in my backyard. So love that.
0: Yeah. Um, they have also- seed mixes that are specific to different areas, right? Like-
1: yes. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Make and sure their your whole local- website, yeah. Their whole website is like tailored to teaching people about what area and they have a wonderful magazine too. That's free. Um, and so, yeah, you can look up all different parts of Texas and, you know, what, what goes in your area, what grows best in your area, what grows best. What belongs, with of
0: what belongs there? Like yeah. you want to try to plant side oats, grama in East Texas or, or South
1: uh, yeah. Texas. you
0: know, like and, you got to get the right and, region
1: down to your backyard and you know, what grows best in different types of sunlight. And so it's, they're a wonderful company, a great resource. I find myself on their website often just reading. Um, but yeah, so rewilding has been really enjoyable. Um, I have recently started to read more about, uh, soil conservation. I think that that's like a really hot topic. Um, doesn't seem as interesting,
0: but it's incredibly important.
1: Oh, and it's so interesting, like the microbes that live in soil and how like, you know, there's so many millions, billions, I'm sure even trillions of different kinds of microbes, like species of microbes. And they evolve with the soil that they live in and they evolve to, you know, uh, live alongside of uh, coexist mutualistically with certain plant species that grow native to an area. And that's why, whenever you're growing, you know, sorry, hate it, St. Augustine grass, <laughs> um, you know, your St. Augustine grass can die off really easily because those microbes don't want it. Right. Or you kill all the microbes and then your soil dies and then your St. Augustine grass dies. Right. So, no, soil conservation is so interesting. Um, but that's all my non-consumptive stuff. Um, and I play Sudoku, but, uh, (laughs) consumptive, I just recently got into hunting. So I grew up in the heart of San Antonio and, uh, believe I mentioned this earlier that there wasn't really much to do outside. And when it came to hunting, that was just nothing that I grew up with. I didn't see it. Um, the people that I did see hunting maybe weren't, The type of people that I would have wanted to go out hunting with either and so um now that I'm back at Texas State I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of professors around me who hunt um and some of them have access to private property some live on private property that we can hunt on and so I actually just for the first time bought my hunting fishing combo license because I also didn't grow up fishing ironically uh somehow I do it for a living now but yeah. So I bought my combo license and my federal duck stamp a little late in the Very season. Good. So I, I did good. miss, I did miss some like big parts of the season, but uh,
0: you're contributing financially straight to us fish and wildlife and, and state agencies yeah. doing that.
1: Yeah. So I did get to go down though. Uh, my advisor, he has, uh, some family property down near Port Mansfield and a beautiful shallow sport. And so we got to go out duck hunting. Um, now, Did I kill anything? No. Uh, (laughs) Did I shoot at some things? Potentially. I don't know if it was the right direction, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience and getting to sit out on these beautiful barrier islands and watch the sunrise. And, you know, you hear these rafts of ducks start to fly, like coming off the water and it is just such a unique sound. And, I was also, you know, I keep saying I was lucky enough. I was lucky enough. I consider myself very, very blessed to live the life that I currently live. But uh You've worked for however, it a
0: little bit. You've worked for it.
1: Yeah, well, uh even more so very lucky that uh the director of the wildlife biology undergraduate program here, Dr. Castro or I don't know if he still is. I know he used to be, but he and his son came down to hunt with us. So I got to sit in between my current advisor, who I obviously look up to. And then Dr. Castro, who still remembers me from undergrad and, you know, to sit between the two of them who are two big hunters and ethical hunters and, you know, to learn from them and to watch them. And it was just an experience that I will never forget. And I will never take for granted. And then, you know, Dr. Castro, he, uh, he, he hunts a lot and he actually got an elk tag last year and I, I think it was in Colorado. And so he brought down elk burgers for us. So the first night we got to sit around and eat this elk that dr castro had harvested and it was so good and i i made i made homemade queso but it was not nearly as good as the elk burger but you know it was just so neat for like everyone to kind of put forth like their portion of the meal and yeah. and to have meat that he had harvested so yeah, yeah. beautiful experience
0: yeah hunting is there, there's so much to hunting especially duck hunting it's a very social event you know you're out there experiencing beautiful places with you know, people that you look up to and people you care about. And it's such a, like a primal thing too. You know, I feel like there's something in us that has a desire to hunt. And a lot of people don't consume when they hunt. They just, they're hunting for a bird, you know, just to take a photograph, but it's still the desire to get out and look for something in nature. I feel like that is something that a lot of people have that they don't ever dig into because they don't, it's just never been exposed to anything in, in the outdoors um, that's, that's so cool that you you've had such a positive experience getting into hunting. You know, a lot of people, of course, ne- never get to have that experience and are always skeptical about hunting and, you know, it's, it's role in conservation. And, but like, once you actually do it and you learn about the, how, how we manage resources in this country and, and how it, it turns out it works out fairly well. Um, and then you eat the wild game meat and it's this like as organic as it gets straight from the ecosystem. And it's such a special thing all around, you know?
1: It was, it was very, very enjoyable. I'm obviously not nearly as much of an expert as the gal who was on the last episode. Right. <laughs> no. And I mean, it was very fun. I enjoyed it. I got to go down with um one of my graduate lab coworkers and undergraduate who works in our lab and then another undergraduate who hangs out with us a lot. And, uh, they're actually down in Puerto Ransos right now. I stayed behind for this, but they, they have become addicted to it. I mean, yeah. they, that was their first trip, except for uh, one undergraduate. He's been out once before with a really amazing program that I would like to talk about too, the Delta waterfowl program, but
2: yeah, Delta waterfowl, um,
1: yeah. so for two of them, it was their first time for him. It was his second time. And one guy the first time he went out and bought a shotgun already since then. Uh, the other guy has bought 30, I, maybe 36 duck decoys, uh, a mixture of redheads and pintails. Yep. And so, you know, they're out there and they are just hooked on it. And I think they're trying to get their last bits of it before school starts next week. Right. But, um, yeah, and then so Delta Waterfowl is actually kind of where my interest really peaked with this. Was okay. uh, one of their representatives, Aiden, came down and spoke at a Wildlife Society meeting in the fall. And he talked a lot about their program that they have where they want to get college students out for the first time for their duck hunt, where they outfit them from head to toe, they give them everything that they need, they teach them everything that they need to know, even if you've never shot a gun before. And you get to go out for a couple nights and uh, you know, get some ducks and cook them. They teach you how to cook different recipes. So cool. And yeah, really neat. And what's really cool about that too is that they have to have like a professor sponsor to take the students down.
2: Okay. And so the
1: professor that's sponsoring this program is Dr. Sarah Fritz, who is uh she was our first female wildlife biology professor at Texas State, and she is a hoss. Um <laughs> she is the sponsor for the program and she, I believe if I'm correct, she only recently got into hunting herself as well. And so, you know, what an experience for the students that got to go, to go down with Dr. Sarah Fritz and, you know, for me to go down with Dr. Bonner and Dr. Castro is just, it was, it was really wonderful, um, to be with, people who I look up to in the academic setting to also sit down with them and look up to them in such a like salt of the earth type way with a hunting
2: experience.
0: And for students, it it gives for wildlife students, it gives a lot of context for like if we manage our resources, right. This is what we get to enjoy sustainable use of wildlife, you know, and especially for people that were never exposed to hunting. I feel like that can be really valuable for a, for a biology student.
1: And I mean, I, I want to say that, you know, prior to this, I didn't have any consumptive hobbies, but I forage, Okay. Um, which East Texas is a great place to forage. I don't know if you've
0: gotten out there to do that yet. I don't really forage, but I spent a lot of time in East Texas, though, around the yeah, forest and some of those areas.
1: Yeah, you got to get a field guide of mushrooms, man, because you guys have some really tasty mushrooms growing out there and spring and fall are like the best times of year for it. So.
0: I've been, but, sleep, uh, I've been sleeping on mushrooms. I, I don't know why my interest in mushrooms has just hasn't peaked yet.
1: Well, so yeah. you know, we're talking about like you get you get meat, and you'd mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes it's just it ends up being so much cheaper whenever you're out and you're like hunting your own food. Well, right, foraging for mushrooms is completely free. You don't need a shotgun to take down a chicken of the woods. So sure. <laughs> you know, you find and They're, chicken of the woods grow in these massive colonies and yep. you peel them apart and it peels just like chicken really? i mean yeah not to sound forest gumpy but you can fry it you can bake it <laughs> you can cook it on the stove top i mean it's it is so so good and so a few years ago i found my first one in san antonio now unfortunately they grow usually towards like um uh, human waste areas <laughs> so <laughs>
0: I was about to say that species probably reaches its limit, like probably right where the Edwards Plateau starts.
1: Um, well, so it's, it's everywhere. Um, I okay. mean, it like the first time I got one was actually in North Carolina, um, which that one, the first time I tried one was in North Carolina. My boss had gotten it and he's like this six foot eight tall man. And he found this massive chicken of the woods that was like almost half his height. It was huge. And so, you know, he brought it for all of us to try. And I was like, and you got that for free? Like that's gonna feed your family for a long time. Yeah. So, you know, I started getting into it. But yeah, you know, the first one I found was near um a sewage uh pipe in San Antonio in a creek bed. And my mother does not know this, and I hope she never listens to this because <laughs> she ate that chicken of the woods. But, you know, hey, I cooked it. I cooked out all the E. coli. I hope. I mean, I'm still here today, but No, it was good. You can, I cooked it up like little, uh, boneless chicken wings. So we had a mango habanero, a buffalo and a garlic parm. And so, you know, I've had consumptive, uh, recreational habits as well. Um, just not with hunting.
0: Yeah. What about fishing? Have you harvested fish before?
1: Um, I did not grow up fishing. I actually hated it. And what's really funny about that is we'd go to the river and I grew up swimming and I love swimming. Um, and so I'd be, you know, out in the water swimming with, uh, my mom and my brother would be on the bank catching minnows and he'd just catch them with a little net and put them in a bucket. And I would tell him that's gross, put those back. That's icky. Nobody cares about those. (laughs) And now I do it for a living. Um, so no, I did not grow up fishing and, you know, it's still something that I'm not like super interested in. Like we, whenever we were duck hunting, we, also fished out in the bay. Cast and, and blast, huh? Yeah, I did not catch anything and I was like, man, you're telling me I got to walk around for, you know, 3 hours in this water that's up to my waist and you know, I don't know what else is down there and I'm not catching anything. Like, <laughs> but I mean, it is I do it for a living with a seine net and electroshocker and yada yada so on and so forth and I love I love that portion of it from the research side, but I think like hobby-wise I'm real. still not super fishing yeah
0: yeah my my relationship with fish has changed a lot you know i grew up like the traditional bass fishing i was a tournament fisherman in high school
1: uh, what?
0: like that was a lot of fun and like tournament hey. fishing for bass is it is truly sport like you know it's very competitive you got to catch five fish within like we had eight hours to fish and it was very difficult um and you know you want to catch the biggest five fish you can catch so you cold fish out and what have you but uh, now I'm, I'm more interested in fish diversity as as I've ventured out from my my roots in herps um, I've car- that's carried over to fish and birds and just I'm a species diversity fanatic and there's all these amazing fish that I want to f- catch and photograph <laughs> darters in particular and like, when I saw that harlequin darter it just blew my mind that that was local to me here in southeast Texas you know in in these muddy, disgusting man-made canals
1: well you know east texas actually has some of the most biodiverse fish communities in texas and that just has to do with uh the consistent water that's out there Um, and you know there's been enough uh like evolution for species to split off that you guys have uh some really unique fish out there and um there is one the cypress starter that's out in east texas that it's closest related uh Relative is the fountain darter here in the San Marcos River, so that's really neat. You got, yeah, you guys have some What's really that? cool fish out there. So um, we're actually
0: geologic history of the area. You know, like how those two species are so close.
1: Yeah. Well, we are headed out there next Friday uh to those canal systems. So you're welcome to come out and meet us.
0: I would love you would to, do like to. I would yeah. love to do that. Um, as yeah. a service, a free service, I am part-time professional photographer if you want photos if y'all catching fish
1: <laughs> uh, um i mean it's so my the, the guy who is uh doing his dissertation workouts he's a really great guy um he's doing stuff with uh threatened and endangered muscles out oh, that okay. way
0: yeah, yeah.
1: um so yeah this is melissa,
0: I, think, I think melissa already gave me those dates is she coming
1: uh yeah next friday
0: yeah, yeah she she had messaged me I've been trying to go on a muscle trip oh, um, cool. I've, been, I've been in I've been in contact with her because um, I I've, I became interested in muscles when I was working at a consulting firm because muscles are a hot topic in the consulting world now uh, every bridge project every, every any infrastructure near water um, there's concern about endemic muscles and East Texas has this incredible muscle diversity and I've been learning a little bit about it I've been going out to, to the Sabine River and And like, I've been finding, I'll I'll, like go on this, on a sandbar and I'll find six, seven different species. Mm -hmm. It's so cool to me, you know, like, and they have all these like weird names and they're just, they're very cool. I I like them a lot and I want to learn more.
2: It's
1: really neat. And if you're able to come out and meet us, I mean, I, I'm sure everyone would love to meet you and I'm sure Melissa would love to meet you too.
0: And, and I'll, I'll, um, take some cool pictures of y'all if y'all want. People like I was doing a rail research, um, two days ago with my friend from AM. and and, um, yeah, that de- definitely like he's going to use some of the pictures I took in presentations and stuff. And like pictures are always good, you know, uh, especially high quality. So yeah, that's, that's something, um, I'm definitely interested in joining along and learning. Um, cause even though I'm not working full-time as a wildlife biologist, um, I still care a lot about growing as a biologist. So, um, yeah, that'll be great.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, far from the canals, but we've also got some Oxbow work that we're doing, um, out on the Sabine and Metches that has been really wonderful that if you, you know, if you have the chance to come out and meet us for one of those, I think we we have to do it like three times in the spring. Okay. And, uh, we, we get to work with really, really awesome people for that one. So, um, you know, if we can figure it out logistically, of you coming out and meeting us, I'm sure you could come out for, you know, even half a day and I, be out there with us. because It's, it's that, always, you know, the more hands, the better,
0: but yeah, no, that's, that's one thing I've found is I've, I've never had a hard time finding volunteer opportunities and with field work because it is like labor intensive work a lot of times. And most people are, are willing to take extra help. Um, I know, especially with work I've, done myself like either working for AM or for the consulting firm I, like i would love to have extra hands to carry gear and um especially doing like turtle work there's all these traps you got to carry and um i can't imagine i've never really done fish work i don't think not that i can remember um i'm not i'm not exactly exactly sure what all goes into that but i'm sure it's a lot of labor-intensive sampling of some sort
1: labor and love,
0: <laughs> love
1: but no if i would have known that you like were interested in fish stuff i mean and, and if we had chatted you know prior I, I would have totally brought you out for my thesis stuff i mean i totally you're done,
0: you're done with that field yeah, work
1: yeah done with my field work but uh-huh. absolutely biased about it but i mean the new Aces river is one of the prettiest rivers in texas but. i
0: remember i commented on on one of your posts um maybe it's on your story but you posted a like a picture or video of the this deep really deep pool on the new aces oh
2: yeah yeah i'm
0: away by that i was like where is that
1: that's a secret spot that i'll tell you after the recording yeah done. yeah,
0: <laughs> um, nobody else
1: can know <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you make of deep in the heart
1: um i loved it yeah. i thought it was fantastic um katie baldock is a really really great gal who i've been lucky enough to hang out with a couple of times Um and Ben Masters, of course, wonderful. Austin Alvarado, amazing. And, you know, the stories that they're able to tell are really beautiful. Um, the River in the Wall was also a fantastic film. Yeah.
0: That's what I learned so, about initially was River in the Wall.
1: Yeah. Um, he came and spoke, Ben Masters did, uh, when I was doing my undergrad. And he showed us, uh, maybe it was just one or two of his short films. That was it The River in the Wall? No, no no it was it was short films that he was doing okay. so he had one on like the mountain lion um i can't remember what other ones it was probably uh,
0: desert bighorn.
1: yeah something of the sort yeah it's, that's it how was...
0: he he had come to AM to do the same thing to present oh, cool films, and that's what i learned yeah.
2: about him
1: yeah and so i mean you know beautiful storytelling and then yeah. um got to chatting with austin just you know followed him on instagram and right. um we became friends through that and you know I got to see a lot of like his adventures and stuff. And then Katie and I, um, we actually just met up recently. She's, she's really, really neat. Great gal. And she's awesome. her photography is also wonderful. Her, I'm, I'm a sucker for film. I love film. She photography. A,
0: yeah, she has a film stuff.
1: Yeah. That's what I shoot is 35 millimeter. And so she does as well. And I mean, her stuff is just astronomically better than anything <laughs> that I could ever imagine doing myself, but
2: it's her job. You know, she's,
1: yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, they all did a wonderful job with the film. I thought the messages behind it were really wonderful. Of course, being biased as I am, I wish that they would have done some non-game fish. We all love the quad bass, the alligator gar and redfish, but I'm like, man, that would have been so neat to see an Oasis Round Nose minnow in there. Right.
2: So
1: yeah. But, but I mean, I I think the messages for the general public were just amazing. And even like, you know people who are in my field everyone loved it everyone thought that it was such a great way to disseminate you know what we know in such a beautiful fashion for the public to be able to digest so that's
0: katie and Ben care a lot about getting the people that are working with these species involved with their projects that's one thing i really appreciate about them is really relying on people that are on the ground working and conserving these species and like when you when you watch the film, you like it ends and you like the credits are so long because all the people they got involved, and it's uh it's really cool how they were able to bring so many people together from biologists to landowners to hunters to hunting guides and all these people rallying around this project that is so incredibly valuable. I didn't understand really how much value film could actually have for conservation. To me, I've always just. Like, okay, you know, we we gotta do research, we gotta put put money into buying land and restoring ecosystems and but films like Deep in the Heart, and I've been kind of put it this way, that film it sets the temperature in the room for people to be inspired to support conservation. You know, and it it's actually worked. Like mountain lions are are actually being um looked at a little bit now like there's uh, an advisory group that's supposed to be formed or i I can't remember the details of it but um he has he has inspired some action for mountain lions in texas you know which is great because they've been just totally ignored for all this time as a non-game species and they can be trapped and snared and who knows how many are getting killed and um he's you know called for sustainable management of our mountain lions just like any other game species and that as a hunter I think that in a conservationist that's I so ideal and something that most people agree with and uh, it's all because of his film you know it's, it's really cool great messages in there and yeah I, I really
1: appreciated obviously water
0: towards the end uh, yeah Big water. About,
1: yeah. Whenever they were talking about, you know, all the man-made lakes and how we just, we don't even think about the amount of water that is lost on a daily basis in the summer times in those lakes to evapotranspiration and how, you know, it's, it's run some of our rivers dry because we've dammed up so many areas. And it's, I think that that was a, a really, really neat portion of the movie and such a hard hitting portion of the movie, right. you know, cause we, a lot of people in Texas have looked at, water as just for recreation and so you know the lakes are fun because we all go out for recreational purposes and a lot of dams do still serve the purpose of you know um creating uh, like water tanks for communities basically to pull from you know but at the same time like it kind of i at least to me it hit home with me and um, I took my mom to go see it. I, I think I saw it three times in theaters and yeah. my mom left at the end and she was like, you know, I I didn't think about that. I didn't think about the fact that like lakes lose so much water to evapotranspiration. And it was just it was cool to even hear her say the word evapotranspiration, <laughs> yeah. you know. But uh I didn't yeah, know it's,
0: I didn't know that we wasted so much water with our reservoirs, like through evapotranspiration. Or evapor evapor evapotranspiration, right? Yes. I learned about that word in like ecology one-on-one and it has left my brain.
1: (laughs) Hey, you say that at a party, everyone's going to be so impressed.
0: (laughs) It's a, it's a very big word. Uh, Yeah. That's that, that the water message was very strong and that's something that, you know, Ben and Katie and Austin, they all care a lot about. They all, you know, I think, I think Ben definitely grew up. They all live in central Texas now. Maybe they didn't grow up there, but like water, for East Texans, water is something we take for granted, especially in <laughs> Southeast Texas. The house I am currently sitting in right now had five feet of water in it during Hurricane Emelda. So like water is never an issue for us as far as being not enough. There's too much water, oftentimes. Um, so yeah, when I when I talk to people that grew up in the hill country or the head the Edwards Plateau, and you know, learning about water conservation in general is is always very enlightening for me. Yeah.
1: yeah, I I have family from East Texas, but uh, so I got to grow up going out to East Texas quite a bit. But unfortunately, a part, it was a part. Baytown, so Baytown. I did not get the same experience that you have. Now, Baytown's
0: Baytown's um still kind of in the city. If you you would have gone, if you would have come thirty minutes further east, you would have got to what I think of as like the true southeast corner, which is like Jefferson and Orange and Chambers. Yeah, yeah, basically.
2: Which, I mean, Chambers did, County, um,
0: too. but
1: Yeah, we would go out to some of the, like, the state parks out in the area. But, I mean, it wasn't – I didn't really think much of it as a kid. But now getting to do, like, a lot of field work out in the Sabine and Natchez has been really wonderful. We actually um, – gosh, how do – I think it was over the summer. Um, I got to do the paddling trail in Big Thicket for okay. work. Yeah. And, so
0: the Creek or the Natchez?
1: Uh, village Creek.
0: Yeah. Village Creek is, is phenomenal. That's where I found a lot of cool mussels recently.
1: Yeah. a Beautiful area. Um, and you know, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty on with safety in the water. I, I'm right. pretty knowledgeable about how to stay safe, but I do, I, I don't really get out to like murky deep waters very often. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, here I am, I float the San Marcos and I'm just, you know, i not even yeah, I don't pay attention to where my body is going because it's like, I know I'm not going to run into anything Well, I'm, you know, just kind of like floating down after we had finished scrubbing upstream for muscles. Then we're floating just on our bodies coming down and I've got my feet out in front of me and they must've slipped under the log because the jab of the log got me like right in my sternum. And the guy who's like from LNBA that was out there with us, he just starts laughing and I'm like, oh man, I learned my lesson that time. But no, I, I found myself, I was falling behind whenever we were paddling because I was looking everywhere all around me. It was just beautiful. The sounds yeah. Yeah. of Big Thicket, too. It's so such rich.
0: A beautiful area. It's so rich out there. The diversity of wildlife. Yeah. And like Village Creek has prehistoric beasts in there, alligator snapping turtles and like really cool fish. And I love the big sandbars that you, f- you find out there in the like the Village Creek, for you, it's murky, but that is one of the clearest streams anywhere around. Yeah, um, I guess because of the the sediment there is it's all it's all sand. It's
1: just floating sediment. Yeah, it has it has nothing to do with uh you know the water isn't dirty.
2: It's no just, no it's
0: clean. You know. It's just yeah. All of our all of our bayous around here are very murky because of our geologic substrate and but the the Village Creek though is it can be like pretty clear. Like you can see two or three feet, and that's like. Really good for this area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean oh, you
1: know, it was,
2: yeah.
1: it was beautiful though, and I, I really loved it. We've gotten to go out and do uh some Oxbow work out in the Sabine Natchez and, oh. and dropped gill nets, which was actually really funny because uh I, I don't think even my advisor has dropped gill nets out in that area very often. And so we dropped them, you know, and we go to pick them up, and there's like just these gaping holes in our gill net, <laughs> and it's like, you know, what what happened and we realized that like likely there were some like smallmouth buffalo that got caught oh, in the gillnet.
2: Yeah. I didn't think
1: cuz they can like rip their gills a little bit in the gillnet. We think that alligators like, you know, either got got a sense of blood in the water or that they felt the movement and they came and tore that gillnet. Damn. up. yeah, that was crazy.
0: Do y'all catch um bowfin? When y'all do that?
1: Um, so Bofin, we caught a couple with okay. our electroshocking barge, okay, not okay. with the gill nuts, um, which was really neat. One of our undergraduates who just started, who's like just fish obsessed now, <laughs> um, he caught one of the Bofins when we were out there. And it's just like it's his pride and joy now. Like it's down in our ichthyology specimen collection. And he looks at that thing like a proud father, you know. It's yeah. it was a very cool catch for him.
0: Super cool. So let's uh let's get near the end zone here. Um, what are your plans for the future, or like places you want to go, or species you want to study, or what's some things you think about for the future for you?
1: That is such a loaded question. Uh,
0: uh, I'm I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) No, 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 no. Ask it. I, you know, I feel like every now and then I get really hunkered down on something, and then I realize, you know. I shouldn't have my mind made up exactly on what I want to do. I've still got five months left in school or four months left in school.
0: Every day is Uh, an experience. I'm always changing my mind. I think I know what I want to do in the future. And here I am running a duck call company.
1: (laughs) Well, and I, I, I actually interviewed for a really amazing position yesterday um, that, you know, probably like I've got some very stiff competition for it. was that amazing of a job. So you know, the, I saw the title of the job and it really resonated with me and what I'm currently doing. And so I threw my hat in the ring and I was blown away that I was even given an interview, you know? So I, sometimes I don't know exactly what it is that I want to do, but I see the title of a job posting. Um, and I just, I apply thinking, you know, like this would be such a cool job and in such a neat, area of the U S like, yeah. I don't necessarily want to go into detail with what it was, but yeah,
0: no, no, no worries. Yeah.
1: yeah. It was an amazing job with a great team yeah. and in just a very unique and beautiful part of the country. And, you know, I, I change my mind so often because I'm, I'm very much a floater. Like <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I love being able to go see my mom. She lives, you know, like less than an hour down the highway from me. And so being able to go home and like, see her has been really wonderful. And my brother lives close by as well, but you know, the idea of like home base is going to be here. Like my mom will still be here forever, but if I can come back from time to time and still crash on her couch and eat the snacks in her cupboard while she's at work, then I will gladly go anywhere all over the country. So, I mean, I've looked at jobs in New York working with conservation easements, which I think okay, is a right. really
0: beautiful part oh, I of love, the I love conservation easements. The whole is <laughs> extremely valued. As a Texan, we, we yeah. rely heavily on, like, as we were talking about landowner support of conservation. And Yeah, well, let's not go down that rabbit hole right now because we're, no, no, no. We're we don't
2: powered. have to go into it.
0: I wish we would have talked about it though because that, that's something, I've covered it with... Uh, I had Suzanne Simpson on it. She's, she worked okay. specifically with conservation easements for many years. And, but uh, that's super cool though, that, you know, that was something that you, you you're considering or did consider.
1: I, mean, I like, like, that's just one thing that I've considered. Yeah. And when I worked in North Carolina, I got to work in our state muscle propagation lab, which I just thought was such a neat portion of this field and freshwater right. mussels are up and coming. So, yeah. and you
0: know, so important.
1: That And what I thought was neat about that is like, when you're doing fish propagation, you can see when the fish, you know, start to go belly up or they're not eating or something with muscles, especially dealing with like the glochidia stage, the larval stage of these yeah. things. It's microscopic. Yeah. So when you're doing your water changes, you have to be so careful about where you are siphoning water out of. And, you know, it's just these animals can't show you what they're feeling un- right. until they are popped open and gaping and dead. And so that was so neat. And the puzzles of like, what is going on? You know, what, what do we change? How do we subsist, like keep this population subsisting? And um, then, you know, grad or getting a PhD, like continue on in graduate yeah. school has been something that's really. interesting.
0: Yeah. I can, re- um, I can see you doing a PhD for sure.
1: Huh. I- such a compliment, (laughs) such a compliment, but yeah, no, I, I love it. I love the mentorship that I've been able to give to undergraduates. It's just a graduate student. So the idea of getting a PhD and becoming a professor and being able to mentor students, especially because I look up to Dr. Sarah Fritz and, you know, as a female wildlife ecology professor and the idea of being able to do something like that, like there are many, many men in this field and so being able to stand up and have a PhD and, you know, mentor students in inside of a classroom is just, I think that that is such a neat experience and yeah. definitely still a goal, but man, there's just, there's, so many, yeah,
2: there's yeah. so many things that I, I can't
1: necessarily <laughs> do. But I can say that uh, hobby-wise, you know, wherever I end up, I, I value community and I value um, getting involved with local organizations like I did with River Aid San Antonio, or I, I volunteered with a compost initiative in San Antonio as well, Compost Queens, um, or San Marcos Greenbelt Alliance like I'm doing now. And so wherever I end up, no matter what my job is, I definitely want to be you know, a part of a good centralized community. Yeah. And, continue my hobbies of foraging for mushrooms or edible plants of any sort yeah. and uh you know rewilding and taking my cat for hikes i i love taking him out and you think you your know, hunting, just
0: your hunting career will will continue
1: yeah absolutely i mean I, I just started with that so i can't necessarily say like you know wherever i end up i I'm not necessarily going to find a job in a specific state because I like their hunting laws, but wherever (laughs) I end up, if I end up somewhere great that does have really wonderful hunting laws, I I would love to continue that. Um, So yeah, you know, I, wherever I end up, I'm definitely going to be outside in many different facets um, and continuing to learn. I, I love going to my library and checking out books on like currently the topic is soil conservation. And so, um, you know, job is still up in the air. Yeah. I I think my passions are multi right now. I've got many things that I'm looking <laughs> at, but
2: yeah. whatever
1: I narrow it down to, I can tell you that I'm going to be extremely focused and passionate
2: well,
0: when
1: it comes yeah. to that
0: position. It seems like you're you're living the dream and doing very valuable work thus far. So that's great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I I truly am living the dream. I think about it often, so
0: Your passion comes through for sure. Uh, I relate so much to people that are passionate. Um, There's a lot of people that like try to fabricate it and I pick up on that. But yeah, you're deeply passionate about what you do. You Definitely tell. That's so cool to me. Um,
1: I appreciate that. I, you know, imposter syndrome is a very common thing with graduate students and just people in general. That's why I
0: I was scared to pursue a graduate degree because my imposter syndrome was so bad. (laughs)
1: we got to get you in grad school. Let me, let me mentor you to get into grad school, but no, I, that's something that I am also somewhat lucky that I really haven't experienced on a deep level. And I'm just, I think it's because I'm so grateful to be where I am and the life that I came from to here now. Um, I just look around in awe at all times. I mean, I'm currently, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Texas state campus, but I somehow was lucky enough to get an office that has beautiful windows. My desk faces old main, which is like that classic German architecture building that we have on campus. And I get to an Osprey has been outside of my window for the past couple of days. And there's barred owls that nest next to our building as well. And, you know, I, I get to look around and be grateful for where I'm at every single day. And so, yeah, just very lucky to be here and whatever move I get next, whatever job I'm offered, I will consider myself lucky there as well, for sure.
0: Very good. Do you have any, uh, any other ending remarks, any, uh, words, uh, conservation advice or advice for people interested in, in science or wildlife? Got a lot that. of it, but we're <laughs> ending the podcast now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's an ending remark. So yeah, you don't have to elaborate too much, but
2: yeah.
1: No, I mean, ending remarks. I think that, um, you know, if you're interested in a topic, reaching out to someone who is in that facet of the field doing that kind of research people are always excited to talk about their research If you've got questions just talk to somebody um you know go to your local library check out books get interested in different topics of outdoor research and you know if you go to texas state um If you are lucky enough to be a student in the wildlife or aquatic biology programs here, just know that you are in the hands of the most amazing professors and graduate students and, you know, get involved. And when you come to or when you get to university, if that's your choice, um, get involved with those professors and those graduate students and it will open so many, so many doors for you like it did for me.
0: Very good. I think that's a good ending point. Thank you so much, Lauren. I had a great time talking to you.